It's early January in the beginning of a new year, with all its hope and promise, even at a time when many of us are still housebound. A fitting time, perhaps, for telling a story. In the Creole tradition, a good story begins with a call, ill, and a response, ow. And this story, as my cousin Adrian puts it, along with our histories and genealogy, is a Nancy story containing the wisdoms expressed in a good Creole parable. But let us begin with the history and how in 1791, one David Edmonds expressed jointly with the legendary Thomas Pitters their hopes for one last Christmas in America in a letter that will be published in Christopher Fye's 1991 work, Our Children Free and Happy, Letters from Black Settlers in Africa in the 1790s. Halifax, December the 23rd, 1791. The humble petition of the black people lying in Mr. Wisdom's store called the Anopolis Company, humbly beg that if it is consent to your honor, as it is the last Christmas day that we ever shall see in the America, that it may please your honor to grant us one day's allowance of the fresh beef for a Christmas dinner, that if it is agreeable to you and the rest of the gentleman to whom it may concern, Thomas Peters, David Edmond. We don't know if the request was met, but we do know that they set sail in 16 ships from Halifax, Nova Scotia on January 15, 1792 and arrived at the Sierra Leone River in March 1792. My name is Akindale Decker. I live in Maryland um, in the U.S. and I work in the IT field. Um, I'm also a writer. Um, for now, it's it's what I do outside of, you know, my my IT career. But I like to say that writing is my main passion. I'm also a uh, um, family genealogist as well. Um, I've been doing my family genealogy for about say about fifteen years. Um, I mean, Freetown is, I, I like to say Freetown is my gateway, um, to the world. It's, uh, you know, I was born there, um, in 1983. Um, I'd say most of my more recent ancestors were also born there as well. Um, so in essence, I'm, I'm a Freetown boy. I grew up there for many years, um, Maurytown, Lomley and other places. Um, so it carries the best of my memories. Um, and for Zion, I, I'm connected to Zion in a way that I think many of us are connected to some of the, the churches um, in Sierra Leone. 
I I was baptized in um in Jordan Methodist Church in Morristown. Um and in Sierra Leone in Freetown especially we have a very um very committed culture <laughs> to our you know denominations. Um so I've always had a, a special place for Zion um and other Methodist church churches in 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 Freetown. Um but more importantly Zion has become a very important place, you know, especially over the years, recent years that I've been doing research into Freetown, the history of Freetown, um, the history of the, the 1792 settlers. Um, and Zion has held a, a very special and important place in that subject. Lady Huttenden's Connection in Sierra Leone, a narrative of its history and present state by J.B. Elliott of Freetown, Sierra Leone, published by the Executive Committee of the Society for the Spread of the Gospel at Home and Abroad. Sparfield's Chapel Committee Room, 1851. Elliott writes, The Society originated in Nova Scotia, Ministers were the Reverends Fromage and John Marant. The congregation consisted of about 1,131 who left behind them in Nova Scotia land and other properties which they could not dispose of to advantage, and for which the Cerulean Company promised to dispose of and remit them the money. He continues to describe how they were induced to emigrate from a document sent from the Court of Directors of the Sierra Leone Company dated London, 2nd August, 1791, signed by Henry Thornton, William Wilberforce Granville Sharp, and 10 others that promised certain advantages, which promised, but were partially fulfilled. Basically, reading through um, books or the different history books, which um, I acquired you know, over the last two years that have um, an articles that have um, parts of our story, you know, the Zion story, the Zion family story and different um, uh, personalities. You know, it, it dawned on me that I mean, they're very interesting stories, um, very inspiring stories, very heroic stories, very visionary stories uh, there. But um, I was always reading them when the main character was always um, either a European man or some European man or some European institution. And so the information that they will, the snippets of information they will add about um, the members of Zion or even uh, the um, settler folks, you know, it was just always to to support some character character statement. But, you know, but there are parts of actually a story uh, that, and I said, we should tell this story um, in our own way. Um, so I have a perfect example to um, to explain this. And it's focused, and it was when I was doing the research for the 
uh, first 10 years of Zion, since we have a section that um, uh, we wanted to, because that's a very critical moment, the first decade. Um, I came to appreciate it. Now, there's, uh, I, I'd shown you earlier a book where somebody um, wrote about the Wesleyan history of Sierra Leone, the origins of Wesleyan history in Sierra Leone. And believe me, the portion in which the Zion Church, College Chapel, um, preachers and congregation were all instrumental in the founding of what's today the Wesleyan, which, which these churches are all part of, kind of glossed over their participation, their, that their crucial involvement. Almost they truncated the founding story and left our left the Zion and the College Chapel out of it and made it sound like only when uh, a European Methodist person was brought, was came across and was able to sort of start the process with the support of um, the uh, Methodist um, conference in London, then things sort of started to happen. And so they wanted, they made this story, the origins now sound more like um, it was that organized effort by the European guy who first, who came, but literally 50 plus years before he came, the records show Methodism uh, was developing um, by our folks and they had picked up what you call the um, versions of Methodism because what happened by the 1780s thereabout, uh, starting around the 1750s, 1760s, if you understand Methodist history, they start to have breakaways. And our folks had actually picked up two sets of breakaway Methodist, um, Methodist um, uh, theology before they left um, Canada. And so for the first 50 years, they built that up. Uh, even before the John Wesley one, which is another breakaway, which became the dominant one, and which is what the Wesley and Methodist is based on. But their efforts in that first 50 years, when they were developing what you call their own version, our African, their own version of these breakaway Methodists, um, some other um, other congregations in Europe were all the breakaway were doing the same thing. So imagine if the story was told, you could tell the story, the story of our folks evolving the Methodist congregation even before some others were doing it in 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 Europe. So I'm Adrian Quincy Labor. Um, I am um, currently living in the and the in Maryland, U, U, U.S. of A. Um, father of three kids, girls, and um, currently pursuing an engineering career. But over time, I've come to appreciate um, cultural heritage and history, and I. I picked up that as a hobby um, 
while I looked into some of my own background and of my ancestors and genealogy of our family. This period, these few years were a perfect time for reflection, given the pandemic, and that kind of gave me the opportunity to pursue and go deeper into what was, what was once a pastime, um, looking into history, culture, and heritage for um, of Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone within West Africa, and um, and it's all its various connections to the rest of the world through, um, and especially through the actions of people, um, family members and uh, relatives. So Adrian, if you could just tell me a bit about the Zion 230 initiative and, and just how that came about. Yes, I think it, it happened in a very organic way um, in the end. I think um, for people to, for you to appreciate um, it or my involvement in it, it actually goes back to almost the first year of college where a historian who's a mentor now, Ishmael Rashid, um, who was a graduate at, at uh, the same university I was uh, in uh, Montreal, McGill University, Montreal, Canada, um, seemed to challenge me on what I knew about um, Sierra Leone, the Creole culture, and a, a host of other um, ethnic groups in Sierra Leone. And I realized um, I did not know much about our history. Um, and that left, uh, left, that left a question to be answered in my mind. I pursued that. I tried to fill in the gaps very quickly and began to learn about the formation of Freetown. I begin to understand the role of the Zion Church uh, members in the role in the start in the formation of Freetown, and then interestingly, the the um, the chronological uh, timeline of the first settlers from the U.S. to um, through Canada to Sierra Leone uh, to form Freetown in about 1792, and I ended up finding that the depository of a lot of that war information that happened back in um, December, January, um, um, or March of 1792, uh, January to March of 1792 was actually kept and stored at the university, at the university I was uh, and in, in a rare collection. And I spent some time there. And I was amazed to know that there was a lot of pre- planning, organization from the groups that left Canada to Sierra Leone and everything that pursued. But, and it stayed in my back of my mind for probably another decade while I pursued my engineering. Connectionalism is the theological understanding and foundation of Methodist ecclesiastical polity as practiced in the AME, AME Zion, the United Methodist and Free Methodist Church in many countries around the world where Methodism was established by missionaries sent out from these churches. The United Methodist Church defines connection as the principle that all leaders and congregations are connected in a network of loyalties and commitments that support yet supersede local concerns. The 
the, the story of Zion Church, Wilberforce, I don't think, I don't think you can tell it without speaking about the, the equivalent, the college chapel one. They were actually hand in hand. In fact, if you really want to do justice about the, the first effort and appreciate the Zion's chapel's own part in an in a in a in the efforts of the settlers, you actually may have to appreciate not only Zion College Chapel, but even the Baptist um, Church by um, um, which eventually was located somewhere in Regent Road, but um, the founding groups all started together. And so she wanted to evolve their congregation in North America. So she picked eight people to go. One of them was this black guy called John Marant. So John came over to Georgia to try and uh, with eight to walk and whatever happened, whether it's part of him, um deciding to go up to Canada or because it was during the American Revolution period or himself um, got caught up and ended up there but he did make it to Birchtown and ended up setting up the congregation there but he did not um but he did not go to um Sierra Leone when the time came um it was Curtis Perkins William Ash Mary William and Mary Ash and um John Ellis were the leaders and they came across as leaders of our church. Right beside them was the college chapel owned leaders, a blind guy called Moses Wick Wilkinson, who also had um, support from another couple called Boston and Violet King. And in fact, they were the core folks of the choir. These groups of people and um, worked together. There was a third group, um, which was um, David George, the Baptist um, preacher. So when they all got to town, they worked together. We built the we built a church on what's now known as Lot 47 or Lot 8, the very location where our church is. That's where they started. Um, William Ash died early by drowning, uh, but he left his land which was next to the church uh, to the church and Mary when she died and um, it was passed on to the church the only person of those three who, who, who stayed longer was who lived long was John Ellis he lived till the 19, 1847 my name is Ernest George Anthony Morgan I am a 35 year old science communicator living in Toronto um, so my connection to Sierra Leone is through my father. Um, he was born and raised there. He left when he was in his late teens. Um, and I got to go back and visit for the very first time in 2019, just before the start of the pandemic. So for Christmas and going around Christmas time meant that we got to go to church and Zion church was the most remarkable church that I had been to in Sierra Leone. It was, it was gorgeous. I think that in order to move wisely through the world, our past has to color our future. We have to be able to tell ourselves stories about our past, the things we've experienced, the things that have shaped us, and 
only in doing so can we understand where it is that we want to go. Um, so I think, you know, what does that mean for Zion Church? Well, I think that understanding where the church came from, why it was built, what it was meant to represent, um, is crucially important because it allows us to figure out whether we're on the right path. It, understanding that purpose provides us with a, a kind of a, a North Star um, to make sure that we're aiming at and to check against um, whenever, whenever we're making decisions about how we navigate through the world. The brethren Kater Perkins, William and Mary Ash, and John Ellis were instrumental in leading the Zion community through trying times with a hostile climate and attacks from neighbours and French firepower. The people maintained their love to the Saviour and looked upon these events as light afflictions, J.B. Eliot writes. This is Reverend Arnold Archer Campbell, current circuit superintendent of Freetown Central Circuit and Zion Methodist Church, Wilberforce Street. first congregation arrived in Sierra Leone on 28th March 1792, it was the start of the rainy season. Their only shelter was the cells of the vessels they arrived on. 
Pioneers from among them went ahead to clear a path through dense forest. Their temporary houses were soon blown away by tornadoes prevalent at the time. Anxious to procure an altar, the early settler congregations did just that. The place fixed upon was under the shade of a large greenery tree, then standing in George Street. There, they continued in worship of God with their brethren of the Methodist and Baptist societies and would build a chapel. These were men and women, families. Among them, names like Elliot, Hamilton, Archer, Morgan, Campbell, and Allen, and others. On March 27, 2022, the eve of Zion Church's 230th anniversary, current circumstances permitting, there will be a candlelight procession along the same routes those ancestors would have taken when they arrived, led by Cater Perkins, John Ellis, William and Mary Ash, all black people, the first who preached the gospel in Sierra Leone. And to them, J.B. Elliot writes, through God's blessings, we owe much gratitude. I'm Natasha Leopold, and you've been listening to Zion Freetown 230. Gotta make it, to make it, to make it, to make it, to make something happen, to make something happen, to make something happen, let's make something happen. Next time, we'll hear from historian Nigel Davis and join a conversation around an old family photograph. Later in the series, in Kingdom Wars and the Middle Passage, we'll learn about the Edmund story, from Guinea to Virginia. Till then, thank you for listening and goodbye.